Let's pray. Father God, we ask you to be with us now, and may you be our teacher. Teach us your word. Be with me as I preach your word, that it will be clear, and for the listener to be convicted and to be moved to um, conform his life to the image of your Son. Thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you in your Son's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open it to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're going to look at the entire chapter this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 is going to be the text for us this morning. Now, Before I start, usually I, I would just read the text, but uh, as you're turning there, I do want to just share a little bit about kind of what my thinkings were as well as just uh, this marvel at God's providence. Earlier this year, in January 2020, the, all the pastoral staff, we met together to try to figure out uh, our preaching schedule of the year. And at the time, uh, there were some things that we knew that was going to happen, but other things we were not. And uh, one of the things that uh, we knew uh, was that I was going to have my second child, and uh, we knew that some of the missionaries were going to come by over the summer, so then the preaching schedule, will, we moved around. And... Um, and it was, and that's how you know why uh, I'm preaching the message that I'm going to preach today. It has nothing to do with some sort of pre-planning and, and knowing the current events. There's no, there's no way that either any of the pastoral staff would know that the world was going to be like this. Uh, and I say this just to give you an idea that as I'm preaching through this text, it may sound very timely, and that is completely by God's providence. In fact, if you look back at some of the messages throughout this entire COVID-19, almost every Sunday message was exactly the message that God wanted us to hear. Uh, is exactly the timing for the moment. And as I say that, uh, we're going to look at some things here that may sound like I'm being trying to be like a current, but that's not the case. Uh, and I have two pastors to attest to that. We planned this in the year. We did not know what was going to happen. So I have two witnesses. And I am not lying. With that said, look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were done, were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of the oppressor was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still alive. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This, too, is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One hand is full of rest, is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never, uh, and he never asked. And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it is a great, grievous task. 
two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower them over him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old fool, old and foolish king who has no, who no longer knows how to receive instructions. But he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I have seen all the living under the sun throng uh, to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There is no end to all people, to all who are before them, and even the ones who will come after will not be happy with them. For this, too, is vanity and striving after win. Although this life feels like an eternity at times because it is difficult and filled with turmoil, in reality, life isn't actually that long. The difficulties in life may come and you may feel like this trial is this ongoing trial and it may feel like an eternity, but eternity will actually make you put everything in perspective. It'll make you see all of the things in this life temporal. Solomon here seems to begin this new section in chapter 4. He, his arguments in regard to time must be thought of in light of eternity. All that a person does in this life will have eternal significance. And if we do it for the eternal God, then yeah, we understand the things that we do in this life. Solomon in this was actually trying to give us deep insight into life. He's trying to give us some profound analysis of, of how the world works. And we move to this portion of chapter 4. It seems as though he's just rambling about different things. Right, chapter 3 speaks of, of time, how there's a season for this and a season for that. And chapter 2 talks about all the work and every labor and all the pleasures that you can acquire in this life. It's completely useless and everything goes round and round and round and round and goes back again in chapter 1. We look at this portion in the English Bible, this chapter division seems very random, and actually, if you look at different commentaries, it seems very difficult to break apart as well. It's hard to divide this up, so the English people that decide to make this a chapter break, just, you know, they just thought that this would be best. It has to be divided somewhere, or there will be this very long chapter. So in this chapter, the overarching theme I see is that life is hard. Life is difficult. Each of the things that Solomon brings up here seems completely unrelated, but is actually focused on this one aspect of life, and that is life is hard. He, again, isn't necessarily siding with one side or the other. He's just observing the obvious and gives a little commentary on it. And if for some of you, this year seems to be like one drawn-out dumpster fire after another. There's just one trial, there's just another afflictions, and it's very easily... It's very easy for us to be discouraged, but it is only disturbing if we have a false presupposition of life. Some of us think that life should be easy, 
that life should be filled with happiness. And if that is our greatest desire, and that is what you think that life is all about, then turmoil will be viewed as some sort of abnormality. It will be even seemed as somehow you're being sinned against. If that is our mindset, then trials and struggles in this life will be something that we will want to have nothing to do with. This isn't how Solomon views life. He knows that life is hard. He knows that no matter where you are in life, what ethnic background you have, whatever society you're in, wherever you are in the social economical status, however old you are, in every area of your life, life is going to be hard. In fact, life is going to be hard, and then you die. So what are we supposed to do with all of this? Solomon gives us observations about life that may give us an understanding of why life is so hard. If you want to figure out how to endure through this very difficult life, you need to understand why the world is the way it is. If you, if you understand that, if you accept the reality that this is what the world is, then your expectations will be tethered. Life is hard, and it's doubly so if you do not take Solomon's observations of life, which is in reality the Holy, Script, the Holy Scripture is inspired by the Word of God. So if you don't see the way that God sees this fallen world, this world will not make any sense. So for us today, we're going to look at four aspects of why life is hard in hopes that when you think about why life is so hard, that these, each of these reasons will make you, give you a, a sober, um, will give you sober-mindedness, so you understand why life is so hard, so that you know how to uh, weather the storms of life, so you can live life in a, in a way that's honoring to the Lord. So let's look at the first one. Life is hard because you're living in a dying world. Life is hard when you are living in a dying world. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. Solomon can continues to dis discuss his observation of life and that life is hard. The word oppressed here show, shows up three times, uh, which is something that we need to think about. One of the reasons why life is so hard is because there's going to be people that are going to be oppressed by other people. Uh, he isn't necessarily making a comment about oppression, just the reality of living in a fallen world. There's going to be some people with power, and there's going to be some people that are going to be oppressed. And then there's some people that's going to be overthrown, and another group of people are going to be oppressors. That's just the circle of life, the vanity of life. Solomon saw those that are oppressed, and he expresses some sort of pity towards them. He sees that as a king looking at other nations, how there are those that are oppressed by horrible kings, and he has pity for them. He sees them. He feels sorry for, that, for them. And this is just how the world is. Although Solomon was never oppressed by people in his life, he was in authority, um, and he understands maybe there are others as well. I mean, he, know, he looks at the world, he sees other kings, but he also was reminded by his own father that his father was chosen um, uniquely to serve the Lord, and even he was oppressed by wicked rulers. 
His father being King David was, followed, was, was being chased by the first king, Saul. And Saul spent years trying to kill David because of his jealousy and anger towards him. Yet David didn't strike back when he got a chance because he cared more about the glory of God than his own comforts. And then this is probably things that Solomon has heard and read and was taught by his own father. And yet this is just the reality that oppression is something that happens in our world. And I think for us, we understand what, that is, that, what that's like. We generally understand what we mean when we say oppression. We may not experience it in the same way or from one person to another, but we understand at least conceptually that the world is filled with people that are oppressors and those that are being oppressed. Different parts of the world and even in the United States will have times where there are people in power that will oppress those who do not have any power. And the solution is grim because there isn't a real solution at least none that will truly last. Solomon asserts that political corruption is terrible because it makes a person difficult to enjoy life under the sun. Solomon's trying to get us to think, just look at these general observations of life, that there is oppression of those that are weak and it should cause us pain because we understand that there, are any, there aren't any lasting solutions in this life. Verse two, so I congratulate the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Now Solomon here is not saying that you should go and kill yourself. He's not advocating for you to commit suicide, that that's somehow better uh, than living in this world. He's just saying that um, if you were to choose the two, that Living life, being ignorant of all the wickedness in the world is better than to live in it. Because it's hard. When you understand how broken this world is, it's hard to live in it. Solomon later says in chapter 9 of verse 4 that um, it is better for a, a live, being a live dog is better than a dead lion. And this is a very famous quote in this book. And it's not to say, you know, in our context, when we think of a dog, we, like, we think of those little cute, cuddly dogs on a leash and stuff like that. But that's not actually what a dog was back then. It's like saying in our modern vernacular, it would be like, it's better to be a living rat or rodent uh, than to be a dead lion. The idea is that living is better than death, but living is hard because of all things that you know about life. All things that you see in life is going to make it difficult for you to live, but it is still better to live than to die. Solomon is saying the obvious. Life is hard because you are alive. Life is hard because you are living in a world that is filled with hard times. Solomon is saying that it is actually better to be ignorant of life's problems than to live them or to live through them and to, and to know about them. It's amazing because life does have happiness, have moments of, of, of joy. And Solomon is saying that the greatest moments of happiness will always be overshadowed by the dark times in our life. And if you were to choose between having some problems in life and some joys in life, it's better to have none of it. It's better to not exist. It's better to just choose not being in the world to begin with. Solomon is saying that it is better to have not lived at all than to have lived and witnessed all of the atrocities that he sees in the world, all kinds of awful impressions. 
you know, this is, I think, hyperbole here to give people to think about how hard and difficult life is. It is better to not have lived or to obtain or to have obtained glory because you don't have to deal with the troubles in this life. And that's true. When you, when you and I are in glory, when this life is over, we will no longer have to deal with uh, the, the, the stock markets crashing or presidential elections or anything like that because we're going to be with our Heavenly Father. We were all born into a broken world, and we are born broken as well. This is the reality that we must embrace if we want to find hope in the eternal. The current oppressions of life must make you strive to look beyond this life. The harshness of life should make you look forward to the next life. For the Christians, we know that there will be a time and there will come a day where this life ends and eternity begins. We know that that's heaven for us. And we're going to struggle through this life and the solutions for our struggle isn't going to end in this life. The true end of our struggles will be when we leave this life, when we enter into eternity. That is where we find our hope. The promise of God for us is, the, is, in, is what's coming in the next life and that should give us strength in this life. This is how Paul views in the book of Philippians. For the Christians, whether we live or die, we, we see both of them as good things. It's really between, between good and great. If we get to live in this life, we get to serve the Lord. This, we could do all things for God's glory in this life. We could um, make godly friendships with non-believers and hope that they could come to saving faith. Or if we die, we get to be with Christ, and that's even better. So for the Christian, we, when we understand how hard this life is, Death for us is, is really a, a good thing. You know, we don't, we're not tethered to the things of this world. For us, life is just a privilege to be able to live for the glory of God, or we die and get to go to heaven. It's, it's just a de- deciding between a good thing, which is being in this world to serve the Lord, or a great thing, which is to be with heaven, with Christ. And either way, it's good. That's how Paul thought about life. Our struggle from a big picture perspective is not between two lowly things, but between something that is good and something that is great. We as Christians have much to rejoice about because of the options that God has given us. God has given us the option to serve him or we could be with him. And that's going to be decided by the Lord. We are faithfully living this life and the Lord will take us one day. But until then, we get to continue to serve him. Life is hard because we are alive, but this life Hardship will come to an end one day. For the Christian, we understand that. We know that this, and this life and all the troubles that, have, that, that, that comes along with it will come to an end. Life is not only hard because you are alive, but life is also hard because we have a wrong view of work. Our second point to this, life is hard when your view of work is wrong. Verse 4 to 6. Verse 4, I've seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind. Psalm has spoken about, about work before in uh, chapter 1, verse 12 to chapter 2, verse 26. And Solomon really exp- explains more about how work is meaningless here. It's interesting that there is a different aspect of work. Solomon speaks that some people are, are driven by rivalry. Uh, this isn't speaking of some sort of friend, friendly competition, but rather this is speaking of, of jealousy, of, of envy, of wanting something more, of trying to, to be, see all your coworkers and, or, your, or your fellow classmates or whatever as, as not 
co-laborers, but as a competition, that you want to beat them. You don't see them as uh, people working as one, but you see them as uh, some that you just need to overthrow. Envy, jealousy, anxiety, and greed are often motivations for people to idolize their work. In whichever it may be, it seems like Solomon his passion for Solomon says that the, your passion, your drive because of rivalry is, is just a complete waste of time. Victor Hugo has a poem called Envy, the, green, the, the, the Green-Eyed Monster. And some of you guys know what this poem is about. Envy and jealousy are, are viewed as two sisters competing against one another. And Envy one of the, uh, uh, is given this opportunity from his deity to like, make a wish. And the wish is that whatever you want, I'll give your sister double. And Envy said that he wishes, that she wishes, that she's blinded on one eye, which means that her sister will be blinded in both. This is how rivalry and envy work in the workplace. This is how it works in general. You want to achieve a certain amount of success at the expense of other people. You want to, uh, ha- you want to one-up another person. You become jealous of those who have more than you or what, they, or what they've achieved in life, and you want to be able to figure out ways in which you can surpass them. And Solomon is saying that these type of rivalry is pointless and striving after win. Now, it's interesting because we know that, well, doesn't the Bible speak about how God is a jealous God? Like, why can't we be jealous if God is jealous? Well, the scripture speaks of two instances where we're allowed to be jealous. So one is, is in the context of the relationship with God and his people. There is only one true God, and if you worship anything else, if you pledge your trust in anything else, then God is jealous in that way. And that's rightfully so, because there are no other gods except for the God of the Bible. And second is in the marital relationships. And we see Numbers chapter 5, verse 14, where um, uh, that's the only uh, legitimate reason. If your spouse is having an affair or her affections or his affections is to someone else, you have a right, uh, you're in the right context in terms of being jealous because they belong to you. Your spouse belongs to you and no one else. These are the only two contexts where it's okay for jealousy to exist. And it's supposed to be, again, a picture of, of God and his relationship with his people. Marriage is a reflection of God in the, in the church, and we understand that. That's why our devotions to our spouse needs to be singular. Solomon tries to root out the heart motive behind some of the people that are, are driven by jealousy to work so hard. Jealousy for the sake of wanting more is a heinous sin because it's driven by either hatred of the other person or the other person is jealous of the other person's success and he's also driven by some sort of self-love and hatred for other people. Christians' response to other people's lot in life, it should be that of rejoicing. Because we as Christians, we understand we, like, everything is given by the Lord and we don't deserve anything. So why do we want what other people have? It's because God gives it to them and we should understand that. We should have a biblical understanding of other people's success. That God is ultimately the one that gives. And we should rejoice in that. That other people have, are given things because God wants it to and is supposed to serve him and for his will and for his glory. And we don't need to worry. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be jealous of what other people have. Romans chapter 1, verse 29, it tells us that, um, or if I, we'll, we'll start from verse 20, 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to their depraved mind to do those which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, 
deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolence, arrogance, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedience to parent without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. So this is part of, uh, in Paul's context, saying that part of God's judgments or uh, evidence of, of wickedness in your heart is that you envy other people that you want uh, uh, what others have. And that's actually showing a very depraved heart and mind. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 4, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and dispute about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and depraved of truth who suppose that godliness is a, is a means of gains. But godliness is actually of great gain when accompanied by contentment. See, we need to understand that we don't need to envy other people because, first of all, that's a sin. right? We understand the most obvious reason why we should not uh, work with this rivalry-type mindset because it's a sin. And the second, Scripture tells us that we need to rejoice with those that are rejoicing. This means that if other people in our life have something good, we should rejoice with them, whether they're in the church or not. We understand that because we don't deserve anything. We all don't deserve anything. We all deserve the wrath of God and the fact that God is willing to give us grace. We should be able to rejoice with others. We're not in any position that's higher for them just because we're believers so that we think that, oh, if that person receives something good, then why can't I have that? Because you and I have to remember that you and I deserve nothing. We are to be thankful to God, for he's a giver of all good gifts. If a person gets that promotion, or that person gets a raise, or, or their recognition, and you don't, you need to think about, you need to think about uh, what you truly deserve. You need to be thankful that the Lord is blessing them, and if you don't have something that others have, that is because that's God's will in your life. The remedy to envy, jealousy, and rivalry is, is what I read in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4, is contentment. You be content with what God has given you. Philippians 4, chapters 11, uh, chapter 4, verse 11 and 12 tells that Paul, and whether he had a lot or very little, he, he learned the secrets of contentment and that gave him a level-headedness, this appreciation for life. You need to be content with whatever your situation is and whatever you have in this life. Because if you can try to have more, and, you're, and the driving force behind all of that is this rivalry and envy, and Solomon here, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, says it's just it's vanity and striving after wind. It's an attempt to hold on to the impossible. This is for some of you who are only working so that you can boast about your riches, so you can boast about your status, you can, so that you can have these things and you can say, look, oh, look at how all my hard work, all things that brought me in this life. But if you strive in life for those things. It is fleeting, it's fruitless, and it's futile. Verse 5, the fool folds his hand and consumes his own flesh. This is another category of work that is supposed to show that, that, that this person has a wrong view of work. That is that there's a person that chooses to be unemployed or decide not to work. And in other words, this person is lazy. Folding of the hand is a phrase in the Old Testament that means that person just wastes their time. Uh, you have seen some people before, especially when they are in class. I remember in, that was like that for me in class. The, the most useless, whenever we do these projects, group projects, just look at the person just folding their hand, just watching you, twirling their thumbs. You know, they're the worthless people. They don't do anything. You, you do all the work and they just kind of get the credit for it. Um, 
that one student that just sits there and does nothing, gets all the credit, and, and yeah, there are those people like that. They, they get away for, for a while, but eventually their laziness is gonna catch up to them. The Bible speaks very negatively to those that do not work. Proverbs chapter six actually uses the same phrase here. Chapter, uh, Proverbs chapter six, verse 10 and 11. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little, a little folding of the hand to rest, your poverty will come like a vagabond and, and your need like an armed man. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 33 to 34, it reads, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hand to rest, then your poverty will come as a robber and your want will be like an armed man. Again, there's a, a, fault, a wrong view of work is that you don't work. We are all made to work in this life. God has given us a task and skill sets that we need to figure out how we can use the skill set that God has given us ultimately for his glory. We need to use all that we have, all of our skills, all of our abilities to work. This is just part of being in the fallen world. It's, I mean, the work itself is not hard, it's not, it's not fallen, but our fallen nature makes us not want to work. Let's contrast here in verse 6. One handful of rest is better than two fistful of labor and striving after wind. There's this contrast here between the per- here and the person from the last verse. It's better to have one handful of rest than have two fistful of work. If you're a parent, you, have, you understand what that is. You have, two, you have two kids now, and I, and I hold both of them. They are two fistful of work. It is a joy, and they're fun to be with, it, but it's exhausting. Um, and as Solomon is saying, it's better to have one handful of rest than two hands filled with work. It's this idea of balance. And if you have, one, uh, uh, and if you have two hands filled with work, another way to think about it is an, it's an idol of work. Solomon writes to inform the reader that both the extremes are wrong. Whether you are folding your hands and doing nothing or you're holding work with both hands, both of them are grave offenses to God. If you are obsessed with your work, uh, it's just as grievous as someone that chooses to do nothing with their hands. In your, li- in your own life, which one do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as being obsessed with work or someone that does not work at all? These are the two polar extremes, the, po- the, the, the two polar opposites. These are the two extremes. Are you the one that folds their hand and are lazy? And are, or are you the one that have two fits full of work and idolize work? Do you find yourself distracted when you are supposed to spend time with your family? Do you find yourself having zero drive to work? Chances are you're either idolizing rest or you're idolizing work. If you find yourself constantly worrying about money and hoping that one day you'll reach some sort of financial uh, success or goal, then life will be better then that's an idolizing of work. Solomon here is saying that a wise person is, has that balance, not because a balance of like rest and a balance of work. You, have a, you need to work hard and you need to rest as well. Solomon is saying that either of the extremes will be unsatisfying and it will be very difficult for you. Not only is life hard because you, have, you are alive or that you have a wrong view of work, but thirdly, life is hard when you live life alone. Life is hard when you live life alone. 
Verse 7. Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. And there was a certain man without a dependent, having neither son nor brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, And for whom am I laboring in depriving myself of pleasure? This, too, is vanity and is a grievous task. Solomon speaks in the section, the hardship of living life alone. Life is hard when you're trying to go through it alone. Solomon's driving the same point back to the listener's ear is that another vanity, another thing in this life is vain. And that is if you try to do all this work and there's no one to do it for. He says in verse 8 that there is a person that is just utterly alone. It's a sad story for anyone who has absolutely no other human relationships to work for. It's someone that, that doesn't even think about that. He's just constantly grinding and working and acquiring wealth, and he's not doing it for anyone. He has no dependence, and there's no other person that depends on him. There's no child, there's no parent, there's no spouse, nothing. Solomon ponders on behalf of this lonely person. He, he ponders on behalf of them. What is the point of all that I'm doing? People work, and then, and, and, they can, and then they die, and then that wealth doesn't go to anyone. There's no one to support. There's no end because there's no goal. And we have to understand that God designed us to have relationships with one another. The triune God has a perfect fellowship with one another. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit has perfect communion with each other. And it's supposed to be reflected in the way that we have relationship with, with each other. Um, um, the types of relationships that we have is a grace of God. Life is enjoyed when there are other people in your life. It is terrible when you try to live life alone. Verse 9 to 10. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him. This is just a general principle about business, that if you work with someone, you will most likely have a good return. And not only that, but when if your business fails and you have a partner, then only maybe one of you will fail so the other can help you. Uh, help you. This is uh, this idea of sharing the load of work with other people. The idea is that when you choose to move forward with some business endeavor, having someone else to work with you will spread the load, spread the weight, and the rewards will be with other people as well. Companionship is important when one encounters any difficulty in life. Having others in your life will mean that you have others to bear this burden with you. And we see this principle played out in the New Testament, right? Romans 15, verse 1, Galatians chapter 2, verse 2, where we're called, Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, we're called to bear one another's burden. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 tells us that we need to, um, we need to encourage those that are unruly. There's a um, there's, and in fact, a lot of Paul's writings, there's a list of names at the end. It shows you that he is not this lone Christian. He has other people in his life that he's serving and, and serving him as well. And this is one of the reasons of the joys of fellowship. Life is hard and you're going to need people in your life to help you. God's grace in this life is through hardship is friendship. And there is more satisfaction in life when you have other people in your life. Verse 11, furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? 
Now again, just don't think, oh, just get a blanket. No, this is, back then there were people that live together and they have other people that just kind of piled next to each other so they keep warm. We have this even modern day, like the Navy SEAL does stuff like this. Um, or if you're married, you, if you're married, you, you understand this principle that, um, that, yeah, we have other people at night that does with you that it's, it, it, it keeps the warmth. Penguins. Navy SEALs and humans, all of these different people, they understand this principle. And again, this is not some sort of weird um, way that Solomon's calling people to have some uh, sexual encounter with someone. They're like, oh, it's better to, have, to sleep with someone else at night. No, it's just a general principle that if you have other people, that you can survive together. Solomon continues in verse 12, and if one can overpower him who is alone, Two can resist them. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. And this is written in a very, it's very, uh, it's a cool thing. It's like it's, it goes numerically from one, two, and three. Person by themselves, people have two and then three. Um, and this is the, I will call it the theology of backup. Uh, if you were to walk around, you're generally safer when you're not alone. Uh, there is safety in numbers. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart, and it is hilarious. When people read this verse in context of, of weddings, some people say, oh, this marriage is between, a fa- uh, between the, the, you know, the Lord God and then two people, the, you know, two people getting married. But in this context, in this passage, it's actually about how life is hard, then you die. So this is probably not something that you want to uh, read at a wedding. The point of this verse is to understand that it is better to have people in your life. Now, what about those that are in your church that are single? And as a Christian, you may be single, but you are not alone. You're single, but you're not alone. You are needed, and you need to be with other people in the church. Now, I know COVID-19, we are almost like forced to be sheltered in place, and things are getting loose at times, and things are more restrictive, but you have to understand that you, although you may be alone and isolated in your own home or apartment or whatever, you are not alone because you have other people in the church. You're, you need other people in your life, and you're also needed to be in other people's life. People depend on you, and you need to depend on other people. If you feel either way, if you feel alone, then what you need to do is to reach out to other people or, 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 or to reach out to others. You need to have other people, you just contact other people and let them know that you're struggling. And then for us, as Christians, we, all, we should be mindful of one another as well. We should go and try to contact people. We all must be mindful of those that are in the church. Life is better when you have people in your life. Make good and godly relationship with those in the church. It doesn't have to be with everyone in the church, but I trust that everyone should be connected to someone in the church. Just be with the people that the Lord has given you. And we should be thankful for the, for the church as a whole because of that. The church makes life enjoyable. You need to be with people in your life, people who deliberately isolate themselves um, um, from companionship will fail and to enjoy life and experience God's fullest blessings. You know, there's a reason why in Genesis 2.18, uh, God says it's not right for man to be alone. And I don't think it's just strictly marital sense. He's just talking about just pe- people being by themselves. You know, whether it's a friendship or fellowship or brothers and sisters, they should have that. They should have other people in their life. Again, it's, it's this, uh, God is a God of relationship, and he wants Adam and his people to have that same type of relationship with others as well, because it reflects who he is. 
God's design for humanity is that there is someone to share your life with. And again, not necessarily in a marital sense, but there should be other people that you can bless. And there are, and there should be other people that are blessing you in your life as well. Those of you that seem to delight in being isolated and by yourself, you need to repent of that. That's a wrong way of thinking because that's not the way that God wired you. You're supposed to be with other people. Oftentimes, people want to isolate themselves because they're thinking selfishly. They don't want to care for other people. They only care about themselves. And eventually, that's going to wear thin and you're going to be sad. Being a lone wolf just means that you need to look out for yourself. And although that may seem alluring and attracting, attractive because you don't have to worry about anyone else, understand that is not what you're made for. Sometimes the people that want to stay alone are, are, are just not willing to think about other people. When you have other people in your life, you're going to have more things to worry about, like birthdays and hangouts and stuff like that. These are good things to think about. These are good things to worry about because you should be caring for other people. When you only think about yourself and you live life without any consideration of other people, life will eventually be harder for you. It may be pleasant for a season or maybe multiple seasons, but eventually loneliness will catch up to you. So what are we supposed to do with this? Again, build and cultivate relationships with those in the church. The church is a means of grace by God where we can care for one another and be cared for by other people. We should all be willing to be in the life of one another because this is, again, God's design for all of humanity. Solomon here wants us to know that life is hard and doubly so if you are alone. So one way to endure living in a fallen world is to fill your life with people that you love and that love you back. Not only is life hard because you are alive or that your, work, your view of work is wrong or that you're living by yourself, but lastly, life is hard when you place your hope in worldly leaders. Life is hard when you place your hope in worldly leaders. It seems that this last section, Solomon tells a, a, a little short story in these verses. He's going to show about, uh, he's going to talk about the scenario about this king and um, that may or may not be real, but the truths and the principles still apply regardless of it actually being uh, as some sore historical fact, but the principles are still applicable then and to today. Verse 13, a poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. Solomon makes a contrast between those that are poor and young and those uh, that are wealthy and old. And this isn't necessarily an issue between generation or, or, or Solomon trying to be an ageist, like hating on old wealthy people and praising the poor young people. He's just stating in general that it's better, to be, it's better in life to be able to take instructions. Regardless of your social ranking, the ability to learn is an admirable trait. We see that throughout the book of Proverbs, how learning and acquiring wisdom is something that is good. Life is hard and is filled with complex issues. It is wise for a person to be able to learn from others so that they can figure out what they are missing in their thinking in regards to life situations. If a person has a heart to keep learning, chances are they're going to, be, they're going to navigate through life easier. Humility is what is required if you want to endure life. Verse 14, for he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. 
So the debate here is who is a he and who is it referring to? Is it referring to the king's origins in that he is the one that came out of prison then become king? Or is it a young man now that has, uh, that because of his humility and desire to learn, usurps the current king? I hold to the second view that, this, there, that there is a king ruling in this place and that someone uh, goes up the ranks and overthrows him. Humility has the ability to move from your, you know, one social, social class to another. You can actually move up in life if you are teachable. Proud people all often assume that they've got it all, and, they, and that usually leads to complacency. Verse 15, I have seen all the living under the sun uh, throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. This verse speaks of a third individual, now a younger person. So after the, the king is overthrown by someone else, a third person comes in and he overthrows that person. Um, and Solomon's theme is this endless, you can see here, this is an endless repetition of people that are just in power and then someone else overthrows them. Then someone else also uh, is poor, comes out, and then he overthrows a second person. This is how Solomon describes it. There is no end to all people, to all who are before them, and even the ones who will come after will not be happy with him. For this, too, is vanity and striving after win. And this is the sad reality of rulers and politics. Leaders come promising some sort of change and some sort of solution to life problems, and eventually people will get tired of it. People will get first be very excited and want to be with this person, but eventually they get tired and they will want a new leader to rule them. Then when the new leader arises, they will promise some sort of new solution to problems and eventually the people will, will be excited at first and they'll be like, yay, for this new leader, then they'll get tired of it and then they'll eventually want someone else to come to overthrow the second guy. Over and over and over again, this sad cycle continues. Solomon makes his observation here that people will never be happy. In fact, that's how it's described in Hebrew. In the original language, it talks about how it's saying that you will never be happy. You'll never be in a state of, or even a moment of happiness if you depend on politics. If you focus all your hope and joys and thinking that this leader is gonna make you happy, you're gonna be disappointed because eventually you will, your excitement and your love for them and your devotion for these worldly leaders will wear thin. The new leader, no matter uh, is, is no better than the last leader. The next leader is no better than the one before that. Every leader in different points in histories will eventually have a time where their rule is over and another will come to rule and then another will come will rule and then eventually it will be very unsatisfying. Their work and legacy will be despised and forgotten and then another will come and things will change, and it'll be reverted back, and then another will come, and then things will be reverted back again, and leaders are unsatisfying. It's very unsatisfying to, to place your faith and hope in leaders because we are living in a fallen world. By nature, we tend to grow exhausted and critical of those in authority over us. There is a discontentment that we have toward those that rule over us in, in, in the, sadly, both inside and outside the church. You know, when we have new leaders, new ministry leaders, we get excited for their ideas, and eventually we get tired of them. And outside the world, in terms of politics, the same thing. In your companies, same thing. We just have this natural assumption that, oh, if we have something new, then it's going to be great. And then if there's something new again, then eventually that new thing becomes old, and we need to find some new solution. Not realizing that there's nothing new under the sun. 
everything has been tested, everything has been tried, and we're just going in circles over and over again. If we only have someone new and, and that person has fresh ideas and solutions, then life will be so much better, and then eventually it fades. Solomon's actually trying to show a mirror to the reader that they are too susceptible to this type of temptation. Even those of you that uh, there are those of that are that are just discontent towards leadership, and remember that new leaders will come and new, and those leaders will go. You can't place your hope and meaning in this life on any worldly leader. You can't place your eternity on someone that is temporal. All leaders, both in and out of church, are just instruments of the Lord. Some are better while others are not. And we must never be tempted to think in the moment that, oh, as long as we have somebody else in the White House, in the pulpits, in our CEOs or whatever, new teachers, if we just have something, someone new, then things will get better. Just wait long enough and you will know that it, it just doesn't get any better. We live in a fallen world and things are just always going to get worse. It may get worse for one season and get better next, but in the end, the trajectory of all of history is going to be a bad one. Because until Christ reigns, everything in this world is broken. New ideas become old ideas, and new solutions become old solutions, and new leaders become old leaders. Depending on who you voted for, you are either rejoicing or in despair. You know, last week, just, I'm reading all these news feeds of people freaking out on who's the president and people rejoicing on who they think the president is. And this verse reminds us that you need to have a right view of whoever is going to reign over you. To those that are rejoicing, know that it won't last because a new leader will eventually come. And for those that are in despair, just, again, you need to understand that there will be a new leader that will eventually come. In times of election, understand that that those people that we elect into office will eventually be replaced. No ruler in this life will reign forever because no ruler in this life will last forever. Even the people that are being ruled under, they will not last. Take heart in knowing that our rulers will come and go, but we wait for that one king that is going to rule and reign forever. In fact, that king is reigning now. We, as Christians, place all of our hope in the moment and eternal in Jesus Christ. And this is the hope for the Christians. In time of the election, especially now when everything is like recounting and lawsuits, and we don't even know if, if by the time of you guys hearing this that things were going to be different. You know, or next week things, we just don't know. So don't place your trust in these worldly leaders. Set your hearts and place your faith in absolute trust in Jesus Christ, who is control of all of the worldly events. Life is hard, and then you die. And it's bleak if you try to live life without Christ. If you notice, actually, in the entire chapter, God is actually never mentioned once. This means that for our non-believing friends that are listening to this, it seems to imply that even if you apply and understand these principles about like work and friendship and, uh, and understanding politics and all that, if you understand all of these things, your life may actually be pleasant. You, it could still be, you can still find some sort of satisfaction in this life if you do what God's word has to say, but at the end, you'll never find meaning in why that is. You can live, have friends, work, involve yourself in, in the political world, but as the, as the day closes, you'll, you'll wonder, what is the point of all of this? 
Without God, nothing that you have or experience will make sense. Without God, struggling through this life will just be a struggle with no explanation and seemingly no end or any relief. Without God, all of life is futile and vain. Solomon lived that life, and he concludes that if you live your life without God, it is completely meaningless. It's the, the, the deep, profound insight that he concludes is what God, he originally believed, and that is you need to fear the Lord. With God, however, you'll have an accurate understanding of your place in this world. With God, you'll begin to understand why you live and what you're supposed to live for because God is the source of all life. With God, you'll have a biblical understanding of work and how you need to live life in the balance of labor and rest. With God, you'll have a deeper appreciation of the companions in your life because God is a God that has relationship first with the Trinity and with his people. Lastly, with God, you will not be overwhelmed by the changing currents of the leaders or the next leaders because your trust and hope is in the king who is in control of all the kings. He is the king of king and lord of lord and his kingdom is everlasting. For the Christian, that phrase, life is hard and then you die, is actually more like this. Life is hard, you, live, you go through life, you die, and then there's paradise. Everything in life is put into perspective because of eternity. God gives us hope in this life to honor him and to live life with meaning, knowing that this life is not all that there is. There is more to our existence than what is confined in this life that we have. For the Christian, life is hard. You're just going to struggle through life. Then you die and eternity is even harder. It's exponentially more difficult. It is infinitely more terrifying. Life in this life is painful, but eternity as an enemy of God is far worse than anything that you and I can ever imagine. And this is a call for repentance. Solomon concludes this book, and then, as I said, if you keep listening to my messages through Ecclesiastes, is that you need to fear the Lord. The end of all things is that you need to fear the Lord. It doesn't matter what happens in this life. It is completely meaningless. It is exhausting. It is a waste of everything because you don't have God. I, I, I think that there is a connection between the secular society saying that we don't want to have anything to do with God in a, in a rising tide of people that are depressed because they don't know why they exist. They don't know, they don't live for anything. There's no goal in mind. They're just kind of wandering and meandering about and eventually it catches up to them. It seems appealing at first that you live for yourself and for yourself only, but eventually you realize that it is vain because death is going to be that equalizer. Death is going to show you that all the things that you do in this life is completely meaningless. Now, if you are a non-Christian today, my hope is not that you get some sort of enlightenment through what Solomon is saying. No, I want you to conclude what Solomon said, and that is you need to fear the Lord. Life is meaningless without God, and I hope that you understand that your life needs to be under the fear of the Lord. And right now, you may not be fearful of that because you don't understand what happens after you die. You know that every time you acquire sin, you're building up um, judgment for yourself, that in this life, without Christ, you can live and seemingly have pleasure, but God has a list of all your sins. He knows each and every single one of your motives. He knows each and every single one of your actions. He knows completely everything that you've done wrong, and he's going to judge you for it. And that judgment is eternal wrath. 
And that's my hope that you do not live your life without Christ and die without him. You can live with your life without Christ up to this point, but my hope is that you repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ, who came into the world and gave meaning to life. He will, everything that Jesus Christ has done was, was specific. He came into the world to serve, not to be served. He served the people by laying his life down and dying on the cross for people so they can know Christ. He died on the cross and he rose again three days later so that when we place our faith in him, everything makes sense. Everything will begin to make sense because he, God, is the source of all knowledge. He's the beginning of, of all understanding. If you want to make sense of life, you first and foremost must fear the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for reminding us of just how life is, how difficult it is. Yeah, we're grateful that you provide a means to understand, to, to understand how life works. The Lord, all of the things that you've made, is a, it's designed specifically to ultimately point to you whether it's work or relationships or living life or even rulers, all of these temporal things is just a shadow of the great realities that's found in you, Lord. May you help us today and this week uh, that we don't cherish our work, that we don't even cherish the politics, or we don't cherish the, um, even our companions. These things are, um, have their use in this life, but these things are fleeting without you. Lord, may our heart and our desires grow for you each and every single day. We thank you in your son's name. Amen. Recently, we've been closing with a call to worship, and let's sing a song in response to that. Let's close our time. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Continue to um, transform us to be more like your son. And Lord, I pray for those who do not know you as well, that they walk away from this message. Um, conflicted, knowing that life is indeed meaningless and that they need to find meaning only in you. And Lord, for us as believers as well, that we could rejoice, knowing that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, and nothing in this world goes beyond your knowledge or your, or your observation, that we can trust you, that you can providentially move all things for the good of your people and for your glory. Thank you for this time that we have together. In your son's name, amen. Thank you for listening. Have a blessed week.